G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. I think a lot of people in operations today, they're trying to uh, they're trying to suck the creativity out of our business. Um, you know, the best if you know, look, if you hired twenty good property managers in multifamily, they'd figure it out. It's not that complicated. You know, it's it's really not, but everybody has their own way of doing things and their proprietary systems and the way they train people. You can suck the talent out of people. Um, now, if you've got somebody with a really strong why who's taking care of, of seniors, uh, you know, on a remote market, you know, I can give them a million checklists, uh, but that's not gonna be effective. So what you gotta do is you gotta hire good people that have the right why, that are hard workers, that, that are mission focused. And then you gotta get out of their way. Um, and, and when, when they need you out of their way, and then you got to support them when they need that. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug with the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Low Hornbuckle. Low is a founder of Good Horn Capital, a real estate investment company that focuses on developing and investing in senior living and memory care. 
Lowe is passionate about investing because it's a way to help so many people in need, particularly in the senior housing living space. He's also on a mission to help as many people as he can whilst helping other investors on their path towards financial success. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today to share his incredible insights and knowledge. But enough out of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Lowe. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Oh man, you hit me with the good day. This is, uh, <laughs> this is my dream come true, really. Um, first off, you're, you're a legend, so I'm happy to be on the show. Second of all, I get the distinct pleasure, and you have to make sure that you refer to me by my last name, mm-hmm. because I want to hear the Aussie accent say Hornbuckle over and over. And Hornbuckle. Mr. Hornbuckle. Oh, so Mr. Good. Hornbuckle. It's so good. So good. I, I, I'm I, so I, excited I, to be here. I really am. I'm, I, I'm, I, was giving, I was giving you a little bit of crap in the green room before we get started. You know, honestly, we, we could be from down, your, your, your name could be from Downton Abbey, you know, and I was, I was saying you could joke if you had an accent, you could tell someone that you're part of royalty. But I don't know if you've ever have you, have you ever used that line picking up a girl before? No, I'm like a redneck uh, uh, Benjamin Cumbersnatch or whatever. That's what I am. I'm like a redneck version of this guy. So I'm Doctor Strange. Oh, mate, mate, I love it. I love it. Well, with that, with that being said, let's dive into the show. Rewind the clock, and I ask myself, all my, all my, all my guests, rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid, because that last name, and then I hear the Mississippi Louisiana accent. It's got, it's got, it's got to be some interesting upbringings there. Yeah. So, um, outside of an allowance, which your parents just give you, which I'm not really sure that you earn, I guess in some households you do. Um, I remember uh, being five years old and the neighbor across the way was 10 and uh, he was incredibly unathletic, uh, but he thought of himself as an athlete. And the first money I ever earned outside of allowance was we gambled on basketball and I was five years old. He didn't have any money. So I had a tab, right? So I won $30, $5 a game. Uh, and I went home to tell my dad that I'd won $30 and I got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> he had to pay me. My dad was all about honor, but I got grounded collecting the money. So. <laughs> on, on what premise were you betting on basketball at five? Like horse, yeah. like horse, but we both sucked. And so it was just like, you know, occasionally making a layup was going to probably be a, a winner, you know? So, oh, um, <laughs> we were shooting on a regulation goal, the regulation basketball. And, you know, uh, we were, we were terrible. It was just, I didn't choke on, I, I try to be a person that doesn't choke on money, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in sometimes a business, you see these people and, 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 you know, playing pool or poker or golf or whatever. Uh, some people just, when the money starts to sink in, they, they just sort of, the pressure gets to them. So even as a kid, I'm like, all right, I'm going to be a killer when it comes to money <laughs> on the line. My, that's, 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 that's a very interesting, probably the, the, the most creative I've had on the show so far. I, I get a lot of people saying lemonade stands and mowing lawns. And I said, sure. do not, don't, don't tell me about your goddamn mowing lawn story. That, yeah. that, that's a lot more interesting. So, so, so well done. But Sorry, what, Todd. Yeah. Sorry, Todd. You're shot there. Yeah, exactly. But walk us through the journey of, of your background. Um, you went to, obviously went to school. You didn't just fall into real estate, or maybe you did. But, but what, what, what is the, the low hornbuckle story here? Well, I dropped out of college, despite being on a really fancy scholarship, uh, because uh, I was just going to take some time off. And, um, you know, I think sometimes, uh, you know, and especially in America, because we don't like going vacations, we just like go straight into everything. And I think you always kind of need that decompression time. So I went straight into high school and college and just want to take a break. And I had a friend that was looking for a job. And uh, I went and joined him at an interview at a car dealership. And then I dropped out of college. 
um, because I just, it was that experience. Um, back then I was very money focused and it's probably the reason why I feel like I'm probably a little bit more purpose driven now because I've spent a whole, I had my entire, you know, 19 to like, you know, 30 years old was just like, you know, making money. And, uh, I remember the first month I was in the car dealership, I was 19 years old. I was in a terrible town and I was selling uh, Mitsubishi's. Um, fortunately, uh, Fast and the Furious had just come out. So, you know, we had a little something going on with that eclipse. Thank you, uh, Vin Diesel, Paul Walker, rest <laughs> in peace. And um, so I remember I made $6,000 the first month I sold cars and my mother, um, who's a pharmacist and, and been a fairly high ranking you know, executive in a hospital, made $7,000 a month. And I'm like, mom, you've been here in your career for 20 years and I've been doing, I'm selling Mitsubishi's in Shreveport, you know, and I made almost as much as you. So why would I go to college? And I think a lot of people were very upset about that in my family, but you know, it, 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 is, it was what it was. And, and then, then there was a point where my parents would borrow money from me. And that was kind of uh, how you like, you knew, okay, well, obviously, you know, you're not happy, but you know, you're, you're getting loans. So it must be doing something right. Uh, and so that was kind of the, uh, that was kind of the joke. And, and then really, um, you know, I was in the car dealership for a long time, mostly in the finance side of things. And, and that was a, a really good period of time because you learn about underwriting, you learn about risk and reward. Um, you also, uh, in the finance department, the skill that, that I think really served me well was I was never, I was an okay salesperson. I was, a, I was a pretty good closer, but, but I really did better than just about anybody else is you had to have relationships with banks. And so you'd have somebody come on the lot and maybe they were, they were, you know, someone politically important or they were the owner's, you know, dog walker, or they were just somebody, you just needed to put a deal together some way, somehow. And so, you know, most car transactions run off credit, you know, vast, vast majority of people put down a percentage and then finance the rest. And so if you can't get financing, you often don't have a car deal. Uh, you know, so uh, my job was to, get the deals done that needed to get done. And so in order to do that, um, you have to be persuasive. You have to have credibility because here's the thing, you can get one deal done, but if you, if you shoot the moon and you go too far, then that buyer is never going to help you again. Right. Especially if that deal has problems down the road. And so you have to really go to the well over and over and over again. And if you think about, you know, how that works with the business that I'm in or with investors, you really, it's a relationship that you have to maintain at all times. And so I think that's probably the one skill that really above all others kind of really set me apart. And, uh, you know, in our business, we call it a rehashing where you, you rehash the deal. Um, and so those types of relationships were very natural to me. Um, and so I always have started to gravitate toward relationships that are not transactional, but that are ongoing. Um, and if you think about partnerships, you think about investors, you think about all those things, those are all relationships, not really transactions. So I learned a lot from that. And then uh, my dad got very sick. Uh, and when my dad got very sick, um, I planned to travel the world, uh, and I, I broke it off and I came home early. He wanted me to go. He, he basically told me he wanted me to go and, and I uh, broke it off, came back early and he passed away and he passed away under really terrible circumstances. So much so that I spent the better part of a year trying to decide if I wanted to sue the hospice company and right around the time the statute of limitations ran out, um, I kind of stumbled into this assisted living uh, opportunity. Um, now I've been doing real estate before. I, I know the question was about real estate. I, I sort of, I started doing real estate on the side. So I'd run the dealership during the day and then I would go, go home and I would lease units to people at night. So at one point I had about a hundred doors in Shreveport, Louisiana, 
uh, and the correct number of doors to own in Shreveport, Louisiana is zero, uh, but I had a hundred and, uh, you know, I was doing that while I was doing the, uh, the dealership on the side. And then, so when the assisted living thing came up, it, it kind of felt like a culmination of all the things that I'd done relationship based, you know, I understood how to at least remodel a house and that wasn't too intimidating for me. And so that started me on the assisted living and memory care journey. So it's very strange to go from selling extended warranties on Hondas and then 18 months later to being taken care of someone with dementia. Very strange. Yeah, no, and, and my, 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 my sincere uh, condolences to you. Uh, lo- losing a parent is, is always rough. I lost my mum a couple of years back. Um, I was living here in the States, you know, same thing. You have, you have, you have that guilt, right, of, of do you want to keep following your dreams or should you go back and, and, and be, of, be of service and of help? So yeah. definitely resonates with, with me, and I'm sure your dad's looking down on you really, really proud right now. Um, I was lucky. I mean, I got to ask him, you know, what does he want me to do? You know, right. um, it's not everybody gets that chance, you know, and his credit, he's like, look, man, I, I want you to go. I mean, you have a chance to do this thing. And, and you know, it didn't, it, the trip wasn't as long. We didn't go to all the places we wanted to. And you know, actually it's funny, full circle. I went to Australia for like, <laughs> six weeks, um, which is great. I love Australia. So um, that's awesome. part of the reason why I agreed to do this show. Is because, <laughs> Cause, because of me, because of my accent. <laughs> right. That's it. it. That's the only reason you, you, you agreed to do this show, right? Um, it's a legend. It, oh, mate. No, not even. Not even. No, no. I'm not your guru. Um, <laughs> I want to know about you know, assisted living and, you know, we all have, I, I, I had grand, I had grandparents because I've obviously passed away, but even in Australia, you know, assisted living is such a big thing and, and, and you know, everyone's going to retire and is going to you know, need, need to be taken care of. How do you go about finding it? Because I know when I sort of, from an outsider's point of view, I wouldn't even, I know where I find multifamily. I assume the same brokers or very similar brokers are in the assisted living space, but, but how, how do you go about finding those deals? First question. Then the second question will be, you know, how do you go about like looking at underwriting, you know, you speak about underwriting and we talk a lot on this show about underwriting, but I'm sure it's a completely different kettle of fish. Yeah. So, I mean, great question. Um, you know, I'm not really, um, I'm not really in the traditional assisted living and memory care space. I think to kind of understand is, is, um, we're trying to change the way uh, long-term care is delivered. And so what we've done is we've taken, when I say assisted living, people picture a thing and it's usually like three or four stories and, you know, or they picture a nursing home and maybe they, they picture a certain type of smell or they picture a cafeteria, they picture these types of things. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. And so what we've done is we actually build um, assisted living and memory care. And so really our deal flow is land. Um, and you know, uh, it's funny the, the first two projects I did, I got invited to be a part of, um, because someone had some land. And so oftentimes my initial business was someone had some land and they don't know what to do with it. So they called me, um, <laughs> now I've reached a point in my career where we actually are looking at analytics to determine where supply demand imbalances exist, um, in certain geographic areas because my business is so operationally intensive and we are the operations company, um, we really want to keep a very tight uh, geographic timeline. So I was very unblessed in my real estate career to be born in Shreveport, Louisiana, right? Because, you know, if you, most will start off where they're from um, and where I was from was a terrible economy. However, I got to Texas as fast as I could. And as you know, um, you know, Dallas, Texas, these stories are, don't need to be retold on the show. And so there's a lot, there's just an incredible amount of opportunity in, 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 in Dallas for the things that we type to do. We're really focused on secondary and tertiary markets. Dallas is a city that's very overbuilt. 
Um, it's often in the top two or three list of overbuilt assisted living and memory care uh, cities. Hmm. But um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, suburbs of Dallas. There's a lot of towns that maybe don't make it on uh, people's radar at a boardroom in New York. And so we focus on that. So we're doing a project in Denton, which is about four minutes out of town. And we also have, uh, you know, right now we're focused on those secondary and tertiary markets uh, of Dallas where the supply demand imbalances. So we need about six acres or so to do what we want to do. Some we'll buy a little bit more, but so our deal flow really is on the land side. Um, and we're not in a big hurry. We're trying to build good, good quality products. And so our goal really starting next year is to start one Sage Oak. So operation company is called Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care. Um, Goodhorn is sort of the capital raising arm that supports Sage Oak and other projects. So our goal is to start one a year. And those are generally going to be 80 to 100 beds. You know, so a decade from now, we'll look up and we'll have, you know, 1,000 to you know, 2,000 beds. And, uh, you know, I kind of think we're going to be more of like a merger than an acquisition. Um, because I think what's going to happen is our model has different different types of buildings. Instead of building an 80-bed facility, we'll build five 16-bed facilities that are small, that are boutique, they're intimate, they feel like a home as opposed to a facility, and, and that has a lot of advantages to it. Um, mm. COVID really proved that smaller uh, housing is better, right? Because you got 200 people living with you, then you have 200 sets of visitors and 200 sets of vendors and 200 sets of... Now you have infection control issues, uh, whereas if you have, say, um, you know, 10, 10, 16 bed facilities, it's almost the same number of people, but now you have 10 front doors, you have, you know, so you can really, you can silo risk, um, you can also create much more personal experiences. Um, another example of that is, let's say you've got five 16 bed houses, that's a total of 80 beds, we'll have five people cooking for 16. So you've got your chefs cooking for 16. They'll have one chef cooking for 80. Mm. Now I ask any chef, what's easier to do? Cook for six, cook for 16 or cook for 80. Right. And so it, it, there's just a lot of other advantages to these smaller boutique settings. And so we're building a campus of those. So basically our entire business model is acquiring six, 10 acres and building a campus. We don't have a single set of stairs or elevators in any of our facilities. Uh, the exception is our admin building, which is not for residents. But, um, you know, we, we build single story purpose built houses that are designed for 16 people as opposed to these big, big, big uh, impersonal campuses with their long hallways and uh, cafeteria style dining. Interesting. And do, do you want to just define for the listeners the difference between senior living and memory care and, sure. and anything, anything that I've missed in between? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, as an example, what I always say is I was doing a deal one time and an investor sent me a Wall Street Journal article about something going on in senior living. Um, and so they were nervous. So they invested in this project like, oh, the Wall Street Journal says this. So senior living is an all encompassing term. So sort of similar to how we talk about how it doesn't make sense to talk about real estate as an asset, right? Because real estate is local. It's also, you could have a market where apartments are amazing, but storage isn't. You could have a market where medical office is doing really well, but assisted living is not. So real estate is not an asset class. It's a set of asset classes. Senior living or senior housing is a set of asset classes. The simplest way to think about it is think about healthcare on one side and hospitality on the other. So, uh, since your show has obviously got a lot of apartment investors on there, um, active adult, independent living, those are kind of similar categories. Those are basically apartments that don't deliver any care that have a concierge or amenities geared toward older populations or generally age restricted, 55, 62 years old, things like that. So that's on the hospitality side. On the very other end of the spectrum, you have uh, 
housing that's based around medical need, like a skilled nursing facility. We also call those SNFs, SNF, skilled nursing facility. So kind of in the middle is assisted living and memory care. So assisted living folks um, have usually mobility needs and they need help with what's called activities of daily living, also known as ADLs. So they need help with grooming, toileting, uh, meal service, medications, uh, activities, psychosocial stimulation. Um, and then memory care, you could have all those things, but um, I think a good definition for someone that should be in memory care is they can't be their own advocate, whether because they can no longer form new memories. It's really memory care is kind of a terrible term. It really should be dementia care because there are, there's a form of dementia where you, have, you can form new memories, but you can't control yourself. You have impulse control mm. issues. And so generally they have access control uh, in those buildings. So people can't freely come and go because if you can't be your own advocate or you uh, can't control your impulses, then you don't need to be uh, unaccompanied in, in society. Um, so um, those are kind of on the spectrum. So our particular type of business, we really are kind of more on the skilled nursing side of things. So we take care of people that generally have greater needs and are less independent. Um, that's not always true. There are tons of assisted living and memory care facilities that may cater to the more independent. Our model is built on need. So the vast majority of times someone moves with us, they have to move somewhere because, you know, where they are now isn't working. And so um, the other end of the spectrum, you know, um, the independent living side that you might think of when you think about senior housing, that's more. Uh, so as an example, in my business, a typical uh, sales process is two weeks, meaning from when they call to move in is a couple of weeks. Wow. In independent living, it's often two or three years mm. because this is a person that's maybe they've downsized or living in kind of a townhouse or a condo, or maybe they're still in their, their, their house. They've lived in 40 or 50 years. And they, the ha and my friend who's a doctor, Dr. Bill Thomas has a concept called in America. And this may be true in Australia as well. Our houses are killing us because people have these three, 4,000 square feet McMansions and you have to maintain that. You've got to do the gutters. You've got to do this, mow the lawn, clean the house. And so most older people are basically dying to maintain their house. Mm -hmm. You know, they're slipping, they're falling, they're doing all those things. So there comes a point when they go, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to move into a smaller place, a two bedroom apartment or something. And I'm going to be around other people that I can, you know, and then over time you're, it gets kind of sad. Sometimes you lose social connections, your friends pass away or, or, or something happens. And so most people are just sort of yearning to be around other people. And so they, they will often move into these congregate settings, which is what independent living and active adult is all about. Um, so the other big difference would just be that in those situations, the resident, the tenant is often making the choice to move in. Whereas in assisted living and memory care or skilled nursing, it's often the family that's intervening on behalf of the other person, whether just because maybe it's hard for them to get around. Maybe if they're a part of the decision, they just don't want to have somebody that's, wheel, that's in a wheelchair and just kind of take them all over the place. So maybe they'll pair the search down and say, hey, dad, out of these three facilities, I'm going to take you to them. You tell me which one you prefer. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different thing. So senior living is really an all-encompassing thing. So when you hear senior living, think about it like you do the word real estate. It's almost meaningless because they're upstream downstream providers. You can have independent living gaining uh, occupancy and then you can have assisted living and memory care losing occupancy. Uh, so they're really more upstream downstream providers to each other. Thank you for that. It's a very descriptive um, piece of information there. I think I, I think back to my grandparents, my uncle, Opa and Omar, my, 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 of Dutch heritage, and they lived in Pridgian Springs, uh, which was in retirement care. And it was it was from A to Z, right? It had, it had the, the younger, 55, you know, years old. And, and I remember visiting them all the time and they had, it was like a, um, a quad. So they had 
two upstairs that could enter from the back side of the property. You had two below and they were essentially units. It was quad units and all separated and there was maybe one or two single family houses, but on this big garden style acreage. And then it sort of stepped up to the, you know, if you're in the manor, it means you were in the more, the, the memory care, but it had the, the lawn bowls and the haircuts and the, you know, games rooms and the TV nights and the swimming pools. Like it literally looked like a multifamily but for senior people and, but also had the, the entry point was a lot lower. So you could stay within the system all the way through. Is that, and again, I'm just talking from a personal point of view, what I've seen and you know, from a business guy, I'm like, this is, this is a great decision. So does, does, does doing it the way you're doing it with a smaller size have any, you know, you know not, I wouldn't say um, cons compared to being a bigger facility and, and having, you know, the, the more of the funnel coming through that you can, can just continue to graduate as you get older. Yeah. So what you're describing, uh, I think um, here in the States, we'd call a CCRC, uh, Continuing Care Retirement Community. Yep. And what that does is that's basically designed to offer a full spectrum. So independent living to skilled nursing. So uh, generally you'll have independent living, assisted living, memory care, skilled nursing, possibly a short-term skilled nursing, which we call a rehabilitation center. So that's where you're like, you, you, you get hurt and you need to get stronger before you go back to housing model. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a common thing. So what we've tried to do is, I think it's a good question. You're, you're, you're totally correct. Uh, larger uh, has some advantages, but larger also has some huge disadvantages. So sort of similar to how I took a second to describe that in, in the, in the, in the care driven aspects, so if we set aside uh, independent living for a second, and it's still kind of true there, but we'll just set it aside for a second. We're focused on skilled nursing to assisted living and, and memory care kind of being uh, the other option. Um, really small settings. So you talk about the person that has one care home that has 10 people or 12 people is really good. However, it doesn't scale. Um, and the reason why scaling matters, especially in our business, is you're not really forced to scale your rental portfolio, meaning you could have 10 houses and it's probably not going to take, you have 10 rental houses, it's probably not going to take a lot out of you. If you're taking care of 10 people and you don't have a staff, it's going to suck the life out of the owner. Mm. Because, and so we see all these times with these mom and pop operators who have the biggest hearts imaginable, but they don't understand business. And so they make themselves a single point of failure. There's also financing challenges. Um, you know, if I call JP Morgan Chase right now and say, hey, I've got this care home I want to finance, what department are they going to send me to? Is it commercial? Is it residential? All these questions come up. So the other end of the spectrum, you have these big buildings that often get terrible outcomes. They got 100-yard hallways. You got you to eat food with 80 or 90 other people. They don't, they don't have enough staff there. It, the, the building doesn't make sense. You know, you spent this 50 years living in a home. Now you're in this big place with people you don't know. There's many problems with both models. So fu fu fundamentally, what we've tried to do is we try to combine those two models. And so um, we still get the outcomes and the, and the personal care that you would have in a small setting. Because we're building a campus of care homes, we no longer really do new care home opportunities. We do campuses of care homes. We have all the advantages that come of scaling of a big building. Um, so we have transportation, we have an activities coordinator, we have the, the appropriate structure. So each campus can be a closed loop and run independently, maybe have a corporate office. Um, but we still get all the outcomes and all the great things that come with smaller environments. Financing is more on a larger institutional scale. Um, and so we really combine the two. So I really think our model of a planned care home campuses will, will be what comes next. Mm. Um, I think that's going to be what comes next. And, and you could continue that. You could do a CCRC 
where you'd have small assisted living, small memory care, small cottages for independent, small cottages for skilled nursing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're just trying to move away from the sort of commoditize, you know, build these big, massive, gleaming buildings um, that are about the building and not about people, right? Sure. Um, and so that's really why our business is unique. And the other thing that's kind of funny, in the business world, we talk all the time. Are you an introvert? Or are you an extrovert? They never ask that question to seniors. <laughs> you know, so what we do is we take somebody that, that's lived alone for their whole life and has no interest in eating with 80 people and we stick them in this big place. And they're just like, I just want to stay in my room and avoid people. <laughs> Um, and, and it's, it's sad. And so you need to have choice and offerings. So I think what our company really has tried to do and to clarify, I'm not against big buildings, um, at all. I just need to have too much market share. Um, and if you study the history of our business, the way that people used to take care of somebody is what would happen is I'm a, I get widowed. I'm, I'm a lady. I get widowed and I, I have to make money, right? Cause back in the day, you know, most income came, came from men. And so women would do is they would open a board and care home, Right. And they would, they would take care of people and they'd rent out rooms and they'd provide meals and just take care of them. So that's actually the more traditional way to do things. These big, these big facilities, assisted living, came to America in 81 or 82, 1981, 1982. It's not very old. It started in Oregon. It was the first assisted living community in America. So the, the way that's so dominant right now, it's not actually the, the natural way that we went through that. So I think... Um, you know, if, if assisted living and memory care was this new technology, it's, an, it's a technology that we're kind of throwing to the wayside and we're moving back to our roots, which are smaller, more personal settings. Um, but in this case, if you're going to build a business around it, if you're going to run, if you're going to create scaling, then the only way to do that is to have a campus of them and, so and you I'll, can have everything you need. And I would imagine it, it, it sort of probably looks as I'm trying to visualize, I'm a very visual person. It, it, it'd be like a garden style multifamily apartment, but each build, like you might have 16 buildings on a garden style multifamily apartment, but each building would be your own little, you know, memory care, like quote, quote unquote campus. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't start with apartments as the model. I would start with a regular neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And when you drive up to a regular neighborhood, there are multiple 3000 square foot houses that contain families. in them. Okay. So now they're all single story. They all look like mansions, maybe ranch style mansions. And instead of being 3,000 square feet, they're 9,000 square feet. And instead of having a family inside, it has 16 seniors. Mm. So um, it really looks like a neighborhood. In fact, in one of our communities that we were building our signature product in, our planned care home campus, um, the neighbors were like, we thought this was a crazy neighborhood the entire time until, until the sign goes up. That's exactly what we want because we want it to fit into a community. We want someone that's aging to be able to like look around and have it feel like a, a regular community, right? I think that's part of the issue is that when you live in a house for 50 years and you get uprooted and you have to go into something that's not a house, um, it's tr it can be troublesome. It can be challenging for certain types of people. And so we just see ourselves as, as sort of the evolution of the technology, which is that you know, caring for others is great, but if you don't do it in the right physical plant with the right concepts, then you can kind of turn older people into cattle and, mm. you know, nobody wants that. And so a lot of seniors experience that when they're in these big facilities and it's like, they're not a person, they're room number, you know, 200. And, and that, that's really what we're trying to get away from is, is get back to the personal sort of boutique model that, that's really started us off from the beginning. Super interesting. I think that's it's such a great, unique way because my mind goes to, well, there's, there's some benefits of having it in a neighborhood style. You don't necessarily need to have the amenities, right? Because you've got someone who's there to come and take them on trips. Um, you might have 
a little leasing centre to, to, to show people what, what you could look at. But, it, you know, to your point, it has the street lamps, it has the sidewalks, it has the gutters. It looks like a, a neighbourhood rather than what I'm picturing in my head of my, like, the grand campus that is... Oh, and over there you've got the manor and down there you've got the people who do this, this and that. So no, very, very, very descriptive and thank you very much for that. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you will automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now back into the show. Talk to me about how you've had to go through the operational side, like like property management and multifamily. You've had to go through starting the own operations of it and, and taking care of these things. That would have been difficult in itself to figure out. And it, was that a learn a big learning curve for you? Uh, steep, very steep. Yeah, um, I can imagine. You know, so, well, so the, I think what happened was I think two things took place. Um, one, you have to have presence, I think, in this business. You have to be there. You have to lead, um, you know, and, and I think the best companies have presence. So what's funny is um, the, I have one facility that's five hours from, well, maybe six hours by car, maybe on an hour and a half flight um, from my house. And I went there and I toured all the communities in the marketplace. And my intention was I was going to see who did the best job and I was going to try to hire them as a third-party manager. And I wasn't impressed with any of them. So I was like, well... I guess I'm going to have to do this. Um, I'd always intended on running this stuff in Texas. I have have kind of a a project in Louisiana that's kind of an outlier for me. That's how I got started in the the development. And um, yeah, so I had to do a lot of different things. I had to spend a lot of time, you know, kind of thinking about how I, what what I'm effective at, how, how I am as a leader and then surrounding myself with people that can be effective in their own way. I think, you know, our approach to operations is a bit unique. Um, I think a lot of people in operations today, they're trying to uh, they're trying to suck the creativity out of our business. Um, you know the best if you know look if you hired twenty good property managers in multifamily, they'd figure it out. It's not that complicated. You know it's it's really not. But everybody has their own way of doing things and their proprietary systems and the way they train people. You can suck the talent out of people. Um, now, if you've got somebody with a really strong why who's taking care of of seniors. Uh, you know, on a remote market, you know, I can give them a million checklists, uh, but that's not going to be effective. So what you got to do is you got to hire good people that have the right why, that are hard workers, that that are mission focused. And then you got to get out of their way um, and, and when, when they need you out of their way. And then you got to support them when they need that. And so I, I have no interest in being a, a big company. I mean, I, I guess by I guess by some metrics, if you have a you know billion dollars in senior housing or whatever, you're a big company. But what I'm trying to say is, I don't want to build some big public company. We're in all over the place, and you know, we're trying to be the largest. Um, I want to have a strong regional presence and build a medium-sized company. You know, maybe we'll have a thousand employees or 1,500 employees. We'll, we'll be a good size, but um, and it's because I, you know, I I I did a show recently and uh, I was having a conversation. We're talking about leadership style. And what I said was I had some nurses in one of my operations that were vaccine hesitant. Okay. I know vaccines are controversial. Let's just set that aside for a moment. Just imagine if you own an assisted living or memory care facility, they're maybe a little less controversial for us um, because I've, I've put a lot of shots in arms of very vulnerable people to this particular virus. And, uh, 
right around the time I was trying to persuade these nurses um, to under, to meet them where they were, to figure out why you know they were vaccine hesitant, I saw this really big hospital system in Texas. Fifty thousand employees have passed a vaccine mandate, and and it, and it was a really interesting moment for me as a leader because I realized they don't have the ability to persuade and convince fifty thousand people. Mm. There's no way to do that. But I can sit down and talk with two or three nurses and say, hey, what's going on? Why do you feel this way? And now they all got shots in their arms. Mm. Because a lot of what runs business is relationships. And so you can grow so large that you fundamentally mute the thing that you do well. And what I enjoy doing is I enjoy asking questions and learning about people and then trying to trying to offer myself um, to help them in any, in any way that I can. And, and, and these nurses in this situation needed to get some facts, needed to be understood. You know, so many people you know, around the vaccine conversation, they shame people, you know, and, you know, shame has its place, but we're past the point of shame working. Uh, no one's, everyone's been shamed enough for the decisions they made at this point. And so what's really going to matter is, you know, what's going on? Why do you feel this way? You know, what is it, you know, and, and then ultimately I think both, both nurses decided to do this because um, they wanted to help other people. Mm. You know, we're in this business to make, we're in this business and we all know that you're going to make personal sacrifices. You're going to miss time with your family. You're going to work late. You're going to have to do that because ultimately if you don't do that, then you're letting some other family have a problem, letting some of the residents have a problem. And so, you know, I think nurses in general, they want to be healers. And the last thing a nurse wants to do is be the cause of the problem. Right. right. So, but I had to take that time. So I know that's kind of a weird answer, but I think what I'm trying to say is, is that from a leadership perspective, I really want to still have the ability to keep my finger on the pulse of an organization, even if I only have access to a few of the key managers, um, just because otherwise you just never know what's going on. And I think it's so easy to lose quality control in this business, growing too big, too fast. Um, and, you know, there, there really are no national brands in senior housing. The national brands would beg to differ, but they're wrong because if you go into a local market, if that facility is good, you think they're good. If that facility is bad, you think they're bad. And the number one way that a facility is good or bad is who they hire as an executive director. Right. right. So unless you've got some great system for hiring an executive director, um, then you don't, you're not going to have a brand. You're going to have a brand specific to your unique marketplace. So it's a very localized, very facility specific business. And a lot of companies are built for that because they want to create checklists and they want to create process and systems. In reality, it's about hiring good quality people to do good quality work and, and getting out of their way when they need you to. I, I, I assume there'd be some SOPs in place. You couldn't just be like, hey, here's the keys, go nuts, you know, do whatever. You, <laughs> because I know you, you know on the other side of the coin where you've got these, these bloody reports of, of people being abused in these homes, you know, and there, there's, there's a big stigma around that of the poor old frail grandma is, is getting, you know, I don't know whatever is happening to it, but yeah, you sort of you, you need those SOPs obviously somewhat to, to keep a, keep everything on the on the train tracks. No offense, but I agree that you need standard operating procedure. But I think where where you might have it wrong is think about it. Standard operating procedure doesn't stop abuse, right? Because if you think right. about it, um, everybody has that policy in place, but abuse still takes place. Look, if procedures and process um, were what mattered, then the big facilities would have have a have a monopoly on outcomes. They do not. Um, mm -hmm. So. If it, let's just take, let's take, you know, and I hate talking about this because it's obviously terrible to think about somebody, um, you know, being abused or being neglected. But if you have a person that you hire to do a job, not only do they not do the job, but they do it with callous indifference, what policy or procedure is going to stop that? Mm. Nothing. Well, but, it becomes well, down to your, your hiring decisions as well, right? And culture. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So your culture will and, and a good HR process will. 
um, to some degree, um, and 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 keeping your finger on the pulse. So that's kind of why I said that I don't want to be a large company because I agree with you. You can get too far out over your skis and have those situations. Mm. Um, and look, you're going to have when you're taking care of a large number of people, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, you know, rain, shine, powers on, powers off, hurricane, doesn't matter. If you're if you're dealing with those situations, you're going to have problems. You're also going to have residents that are rude to staff. I mean, it's not uncommon for residents to say something racist to a staff member, say something sexist, be inappropriate, and, and we have to deal with that. Um, so policies and procedures are great. They're important. I'm not against them. I think we've reached a stage in business now where everybody wants to systematize everything when often the answer is just hire good quality, talented people and let them do what they do well. So Sejok, um, our operations company, um, the different communities are all a little different. Um, they operate inside a range of, you know, acceptable parameters, but, um, you know, different leaders are going to have different strengths. And so I have to support those leaders in different ways. Mm. So some leaders I supplement like, Hey, make sure, you know, if you've got an amazing executive director, who's like weak at technology, then you're like, okay, well, when you hire your assistant ED, make sure they're good at technology so that you're not fumbling around Dropbox, or you're not fumbling around, you know, whatever app that we need to do. And then on the other hand, you'll have somebody who's like amazing at like going and coaching their caregivers and always engaging them in doing those things, but they're weak on facilities management, right? So what you really have to do is you build these good teams and, and, you, and you build these situations, then you, then you, then you build around them and you accentuate their strengths and you help them with their weaknesses. And so that's really where HR to me is powerful is because you, you know, essentially assisted living and memory care, you're a big, you're a big human resource company. That's really the answer. If you've got great caregivers, you've got great management, most of your problems are going to be solved. hundred percent. And I've had, I interviewed a couple of my property managers on the show and they said exactly the same thing in, in the manager, the, the, we'll call it the real estate management game, whether it be in assisted living or, or just multifamily or even asset manage, uh, 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 self storage or whatever that might be, you're in the HR business, right? You're, you're, you're managing people who rent from you, whether it be a multifamily, whether it be a bed uh, in your case or, or a storage facility. It's all about the management of those people, and and that's you know, I'm sure you've got your trials and tribulations of you know. Um, the, the, the ebbs and flows that come with 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 you know that type of business. So, um, shifting gears just slightly, I want to talk just briefly towards the end of the show here, just about the high level numbers. You know, you, you talk about you're developing from scratch. Um, I've, I've had some development, a lot of development experience here, developing multifamily uh, from ground up. So I understand, you know, construction cap rates versus interest rates and what you want to try and keep in terms of margin. But what are you? There's obviously the build side. Um, but but well, let's talk about the build side. What are you sort of building on? On and you know, if you give me away all the all the numbers, but is there a certain cap rate you're trying to build to to make it to make a pencil to know that your operations team can also make some money from from just a you know, bottom line point of view? Yeah, so <clears throat> great question. Um, you know, I don't you know I don't necessarily know that um, that I'm the the strongest data person in the world. Uh, you know, I'm probably 25% data and 75% story. Um, so what I try to do in this business is create a compelling story. Um, you know, and, and what's interesting is in our business is that you can model a deal at $6,500 per bed rent. And when you build the thing, you bring it on market at $8,500 a bed. So you can make a lot of mistakes mm. when you miss the revenue by 30%. Um, you know, cause if it made sense of 6,500. Um, so what I would say is just as a general rule of thumb, um, 
bringing on new build assisted living and memory care is going to come online in the range of 200,000 to 300,000 a bed. A bed. Per bed, yes. Yeah, wow, okay. So, you know, an 80 bed facility is gonna cost, uh, you know, if you're doing it correct, in certain markets, it's gonna cost you, it probably can't anymore, it'd probably be more on the $300,000 side, it's gonna probably be a $24 million facility. Now, there's some exceptions to that. If you're building a high rise urban infill and you're going up, then it might, you might be doing something very differently. But I would say the average right now, if you're gonna build something, it's probably, let's just call it 300,000 a bed. Interesting. Um, and, um, you know, the thing about what we do, so we don't necessarily, so a lot of people build multifamily because they can build it at a better cap rate than they can buy it at, right? Um, that's not what we're doing here. We're actually building a physical plant and we're building a something that doesn't exist in the marketplace. I can't go out and buy campuses uh, like what I designed because I haven't built that many. Mm. So th there's very little of what we do. So we're creating it because we don't have a choice. So the problem we want to solve is we want to improve outcomes. And in order to improve outcomes, we need our physical plant to, to sort of match and be in line with our operational structure. And so we have to build it because it doesn't exist. Mm. Um, so, you know, we, we, I hate the word, I really do. I'm trying to disrupt senior housing in, in my own little way, but you know, because I don't want to be a big company, I hope people take some of the ideas that we've done and they copy them and mimic them and, and you know, take them to other markets, you know, just, just don't come to my market. <laughs> take it back Doing to Australia for, for sure. sure. But I was, I, was, I was doing the rough math there, 6,500 bucks on a $300,000 per bed, you're looking about a 25, 26% ROI uh, on an annual basis, which is which is a really good return on, on you know, and I look at that on a multifamily, right? If I'm gonna spend $7,500 to renovate a property, I need to see what rental bump am I gonna get to make sure that that makes sense. So, you know, sure. very, very, I'm just doing some, this is for the listeners. So yeah, they, I mean, you they, gotta have, you have a very, you have a very different labor profile. So for example, a good rule of thumb too, is for every bed that you have, you're gonna have anywhere from half to 0.75 employees. So half just imagine point. if you have a thousand beds of assisted living, you're gonna have 500 to 750 employees if you're doing it right, if you have the mm -hmm. correct ratios of staff. Um, now think about a thousand doors multifamily, you can might have 25. Yep. yep. Um, so maybe less, depending on how many, you know, how many people you have in the community. So really it's, it's, it's a service business that has a real estate component to it. Yep. Um, it's not really a real estate business in my opinion. You know, obviously people rent apartments oftentimes because the location's good, the amenities are good, the, um, the pricing makes sense. People uh, will travel and overpay and uh, do all kinds of things in assisted living and memory care if they like the team sitting belly to belly with them, right? They want, they're really buying the team and the building comes with the team. So it's a very different, uh, different, different business. Um, and so you can do some things where basically you can go into a market and assisted living and memory care and the market could change and your strategy no longer is getting your fair share of the market. Your strategy is getting your unfair share of the market because you're a non-commoditized um, type of business. And so that's really the secret sauce is you just can't be a commodity. Right. Well, what's the rule of thumb on your, your expense ratio then, given that that, that, that that half person per bed? Because, you know, really multifamily is roughly 50%, 55%. Like, what are, what, are you, what are you expecting on your operational costs on that, that side? Oh, yeah. So, oftentimes, you're going to be, uh, you know, probably 70 or 80 a lot of times right. in, in assisted living or memory care. Um, so, uh, but <clears throat> again, I'm, I'm not a super high-level data guy. I'm no, that's fine. I'm just a redneck. So I just go in and go, okay, well, how much we got to, you know, if you do a deal in California, you're going to potentially, there's, there's places in the country where there's demand, but 
there's gaps in the labor market. You can't get caregivers, right? So if you can't get caregivers, it doesn't matter what you do, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's other places where um, the price elasticity of the residents doesn't allow um, for you to meet minimum wage requirements, right? So it's, it's really, it's less in my opinion. And again, maybe if I was trying to be a big company, I'd be more focused on these high level data analytics, but I just, I have some back of the napkin stuff that I do. Um, but generally what I try to do is I try to figure out, you know, what's the labor market like in this place? If you can't find caregivers, what do we have, what do we have to pay caregivers? You know, are there nurses, what, you know, what's going on? And then, then that aspect, and then, and then who's the, who's charging the most in the marketplace and, you know, can we be better than them or, if there are ceiling, because you know we, we think their physical plan is so amazing, right? It's this beautiful thing on a bluff overlooking a lake. People are going to spend money for that. So you just kind of figure out where the the gaps are in the marketplace, and then you start to kind of create a story inside of that. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know that I do it that way. I, you know, I'm very personal. I, I think one of the things that happens a lot too in real estate is we look at stuff online, and we you got to get in the market to understand what's going on. Yep. Um, you really have to see because sometimes you're on the wrong side of the street or, you know, it doesn't present the same way or it's hard to get to, you got to take an exit or whatever. So I think sometimes um, that gets lost in, in, in this business. And when you're taking care of other people, you just have to pay attention to the where, the why, the how, um, as opposed to some of the high level stuff. So I'm sorry, I'm not great on that. No, no, that's fine. That's, that's yeah, great. We're, just, we're, we're, we're asking ourselves the big questions and we sort of hone in from there. Awesome. Awesome, mate. Well, look, as we come to the end of the show, I'd love to ask you, what, what's your sort of vision for the next five to 10 years with, with Goodhorn and Sage? Yeah, so um, the goal is to start a, a Sage Oak community um, every year. Um, these will generally be, you know, they'll usually have phases, but let's just say they will be 80 to 160 beds. So we'll start one of those a year. It takes about three years to, to get things going, depending upon the market you're developing in, really focused on North Texas. Um, Goodhorn Capital, um, would very much like to, uh, you know, support Sage Oak in that mission. And then secondarily, uh, we're very bullish on other assets like, you know, apartments, things like that. You know, we believe there's, there's strong demographic reasons for, the, for that. And obviously we're fundamentally in the demographics business. So we, we enjoy uh, co-GPing or uh, being involved in, in other things. I, I feel like Sage Oak is our change the world business. And then mm-hmm. we sort of along the way will, uh, do some layups and, and, and you know, stabilize multifamily, um, which is to say they're not layups because they're not layups for the person that's probably underwritten hundred deals to get that one deal. I can't tell you how much I hate that part of the business. I love <laughs> the strategy. I love thinking through, I love all the stuff that is involved in real estate, but you know, if I had to underwrite hundred deals to get a deal, I wouldn't be in this business. Um, so there are people that love doing that stuff that love diving into numbers and doing that and God love them. It ain't me. Um, and, uh, so, uh, we, we like to partner with folks and asset classes and ultimately I would say long-term, um, we like needs. Um, so one of the reasons why I can't get that excited about storage, I mean, I I like storage, but I and I think it's proven to be very resilient. There's going to come a time when you don't really have to store your stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, there's going to come a time, like, I don't, I don't think like, I don't think cavemen, like we're like renting with this cave to store my grandmother's like they weren't doing that right so i think i I believe the world sort of moves in these predictable ways and we always end up where we started uh and i think we're going to come through a time where housing people have to have housing people have to have medical care people have to have certain things i don't know that storage is on that list yet Hmm. um now Uh, i I, I would i would add that the consumerism part of our, our, our lifestyle is like we just we just buy too much crap 
you know, <laughs> you know and, and we feel guilty about it. So we store it. And, I, and right. look, that's a very powerful thing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, and I'm not maybe 30 years from now. I, mm. I don't know right. when society is going to change, but I'm positive that it will. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, and I'm not against storage. I probably I've invested in some storage deals, but I would rather invest in an RV park or a mobile home park or an apartment because I know that people have to have affordable housing. Um, yep. That's and that's that's not a given. You don't have to store stuff. Um, so, but, you know, storage is kind of interesting business if you think about it, because sometimes you're cold storage and you're just giving freezer space to restaurants. Right. So storage is, again, its own separate little asset class. And when you dive into minutiae, there's tons of reasons to be really bullish on storage. Um, but Agreed. ultimately, I just think general, you know, storing retail people's stuff. I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't see that as a need. So I think Goodhorn Capital really is focused on uh, filling needs of people. People have to have housing, they have to have medical care, they have to have those types of things. I love it. I love the philosophy behind all of this stuff. It's, it's been an awesome, awesome interview, mate. Uh, at the end of every show, we'd like to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Sure. Mate, number one question, this is a bit of a lightning round for all our guests on the show, but the first question is, what is a daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I focus on sleeping well. Mm, that's good. I started tracking my sleep. Uh, I'm a bit of a wild man, but you know, I find that if I sleep well, I can do almost anything. So I focus on, on sleep. That's, that's so powerful. Yeah. I, so many people like, Oh, I had three hours of sleep. Like, yeah, you, you're going to go to your grave early. <laughs> you need, your body needs it. So I, I, I'm a big, big sleep, sleep tracking fan as well. Uh, question number two is who's been the most influential person in your career? <sighs> There's a lot to choose from. Um, you know, I think, uh, God, we talked about this earlier. It's kind of funny. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Grant Cardone. <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm going to say it with, a, with, with I'm going to say it with extreme prejudice, which is to say that I think what Cardone did for me that was really important was, you know, the early part of Cardone was basically trying to remove the stigma from being a good salesperson, mm-hmm. um, you know, seller be sold and some of that stuff. And I don't really resonate with this stuff much anymore. So if he's listening, sorry, brother. But, <laughs> um, but what I will say is that I think he did a great service because he made people realize that sales didn't have to be this negative thing. And so the type of sales that I'm in, um, I really think are about helping people. And so I believe my job is to diagnose someone's problem and then offer a solution to that problem. Um, and so I think Grant Cardone really influenced me in making me realize that being a salesperson didn't have to be a bad thing, you know, yep. and that it doesn't have to be the boiler room. It can be something else. No, I like that. It's, it's a good, a good take on, on Cardone and, and hopefully. I knew him long before he was this, this celebrity. <laughs> so I knew, I knew vintage Cardone. Um, <laughs> vintage Cardone. Vintage Cardone. Love it. I want to, you still want to get him on at some point, but uh, working towards that. Uh, question number three. this clip and he'll jump on the show. Just, just to spite. Just to just spite you. <laughs> good, 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 good point. I will, I'll definitely try and uh, tag him in this uh, when it goes on social media. Um, question number three. What is the most influential tool in your business? And when I say tool, it could be a physical tool like a journal or a mobile phone, or it could be a piece of software that you just can't run your business without. What is it? Oh, for sure. It's my cell phone. Um, you know, obviously, um, I, a, a friend, uh, Beth Clifford, um, said, um, that, you know, if she could only pick one item, uh, to start over, she'd pick her phone, right. Because it has everybody in it. Um, so yeah, it's definitely your phone. I mean, you can do so many things with your phone. I mean, obviously we spend so much time, you know, so much coaching and training is a text or a phone call or, or something. So I think a phone is, is definitely our, 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 our greatest, my greatest tool. It's also, uh, it's also our, our greatest holdup in life, mm. but it's, it's our greatest tool for sure. Death scroll. 
Death scroll. Look at those bloody death scrolls late at night. No, I know what you mean. Um, good stuff. Uh, question number four is, what has been the biggest failure? Sorry, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure in your career? What did you learn from that failure? Hmm, I have so many. Um, <laughs> I think the biggest failure for me um, was not being able to balance um, being an entrepreneur with my personal life. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I think, um, you know, when you first start a company, if it's a difficult company, you can definitely pay the price. And I think I probably paid the price in terms of my, my personal relationships. And, and so I can definitely, I, I would definitely identify that as, as probably the biggest failure. What, and so what did you learn from that? Was it just, you know, to not, to not choose difficult businesses or just to like not put the pressure on yourself so much? No, I, I, think, um, I think the answer for me was I surround myself with people that are supportive of what I'm doing. Hmm. Um, so sometimes, um, let's say if you're not an entrepreneur and then you start a company and you've got friends and family that know you as the old you, right? And you see yourself as this different person. I think when people meet you at sort of the apex of your entrepreneurial journey, um, then they get it. It's baked in, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, jokingly, you know, like if you, if you marry somebody and they become a cop and you're like, oh, don't do that. It's a dangerous job. It's totally different than if you're like, you're a police officer and I want to marry you. As mm -hmm. an example. So right. I think, I think just meeting people and having people that are supportive and understanding that, um, you know, that you're going to get distracted sometimes as an entrepreneur in ways that maybe somebody that's punching a nine to five clock may not. Awesome. Awesome stuff. All right. Last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? goodhorncapital.com. Uh, they can go there. My email address is just low, L-O-E, at goodhorncapital.com. My business partner is named Good. My name is Horn Buckle, which we didn't say nearly enough of in our Australian <laughs> accent. So that became goodhorncapital.com. If they go there, they can throw in their name and email address and we'll give them a copy of our book, The Say Joke Story, which kind of walks through the story I told about my dad and kind of how we, how we started Say Joke as a company. That's awesome, mate. That's awesome. Well, look, I want to thank you for jumping on the show today. I want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. I think the, the big thing is, you know, for me is your mission, right? You're, you're so mission orientated and you're very clear with that mission. And so many entrepreneurs get into businesses to try and make them money, but you all got into a business that, that is somewhat difficult from the outsider's point of view, building from ground up, building, building demand, but, but knowing that at the end of the day, you're doing good for people uh, and, and, and for the senior community that we, that we live with and, and the, the aging population, I think is, is, is probably the number one thing. And then to take to tackle the operations side, like that's kudos to you, man. I, I wouldn't even think of like having to hire nurses and cooks and drivers and all the things that go on with what you were saying earlier about it, it's being a HR company. So um, tackling it all, but, but I think it also would have benefits in the long term that you are vertically integrated like that because if you did farm it out, it just, you may not have the right reputation that you have today. So, so I think there is sort of half a, a couple of points that I, that I took away from today's show. Um, did I leave anything out? No, I mean, other than it's, it's really fun to be interviewed by someone with such a, such a wonderful accent. And I'm very <laughs> excited about this. Well, Mr. Hornbuckle, I want to thank you for, for, for jumping on today's show. Enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up very, very soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was, it was a real pleasure. Awesome. Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Lowe. Remember to head over to goodhorncapital.com, download his book, and find out a little bit more about his story and what he's doing at Sage Oak um, as well. 
interesting enough, his, his partner's last name was also good. I thought they came out of it. They looked at Wildhorn and they, you know, they copied us. But uh, not to be. Uh, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ. If you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And if you want to know anything more about myself, head over to readgoosens.com. You can follow me on all the social media platforms. And we're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. <laughs>